Hello everyone, my name is Jeff Ando. I'm Director of Content and Production at GTR. I'm delighted to welcome you to this latest installment of GTR's Trade Talks podcast series, reflecting on the recent GTR Trade Finance Funds webinar, which brought together a wealth of knowledge and expertise from the worlds of traditional trade finance, institutional investment, and asset management. One of the first issues for discussion was the very definition of trade finance funds, which has become something of a catch-all term in the market. For this section, we heard from Dave Skirzenski, CEO of Raystone Capital, Ulla Fetzer, Client Portfolio Manager at NN Investment Partners, and David Fry, CEO at Levantor. We see a fund as entity which raises capital for which to then purchase assets. And those assets, as you stated, are very specific. It's either going to purchase loans, it's going to purchase trade receivables, and even more specifically, it's going to have a certain risk box and you know, operate within that risk box. Trade finance funds are typically not the originator of the original deal, and they may not even be the servicer doing all the you know belts and suspenders, payments, collections, and reconciliations. They're a vehicle that is intended to raise capital from limited partners and then deploy that capital. At NN Investment, we do have maybe a slightly different approach because we manage um, investments, portfolios, mandates for institutional investors. Uh, pension funds, insurance companies. So indeed, it's a question of um, how to deploy capital efficiently and also how to create diversified granular portfolio that um, offer additional benefits like um, low correlation to more, let's say, traditional fixed income asset classes. Um, so indeed, it's, it's worth focusing where the money comes from, what those kind of investors are looking for, not only in terms of yield, but also in terms of capital efficiency, talking about solvency too, and then deploy it in a very efficient um, way. With all of our investors, we, we have to understand, you know, at a very detailed level what their target market is. Uh, so, you know, whereas traditionally we started out with banks, it was very much focused on relationships. You know, where where's, is their target set of clients? Those are the ones that they want to come in and, and support with the, with the capital that they're putting to use through our platform. With the trade finance funds, um, it's it's generally not relationship driven. Uh, you know, they, they do have obviously a, a very well-defined uh, risk return profile uh, that uh, as far as ones that we have spoken with and worked with, um, you know, yield is obviously a very important part of that. Uh, other factors uh, such as, uh, you know, public listing, private company, uh, geography, uh, currency, tenor, um, you know, each each fund tends to, in our experience, have, uh, you know, that checklist that we work with them. Uh, and then we will just basically match the assets uh, that we show them to that, uh, that target profile that they've established. As we proceed and, and as we look at the market, we see more and more participants coming up with uh, funds and, and strategies similar to ours. So in the end, what, what we don't want to do is kind of taking over the, the relationship part or, or replacing an originator or replacing a bank. That's not our intention. We, we purely look at it as a financial investor. We are looking for solid, stable assets and investments um, we want to invest in and that on an ongoing basis. 
So it's it's for us. We we um, of course do cooperate and discuss with originators. We we do partner up with uh, sourcing partners, of course, because we need to have this. We we are a asset management firm. We are not an originator. We are not a servicer. So I think that's that's quite clear um, to distinct or have the differentiation between the two different roles. For a while, it looked like banks were going to exit the trade finance space because of Basel III. But um, they, they've certainly been partnering more with fintechs now um, and getting back into the space. But banks will always stay within their box, which is generally investment grade, clients that they have a relationship with, they can cross sell. So non-banks are going to continue to grow in this space tremendously um, and I think have a great success. For us, there's a, a very natural balance uh, in the funding that we source uh, between banks and non-bank uh, investors, and it's you know it's exactly what uh, what Ula and, and Dave just uh, touched on there. Um, you know, we these are short-term recurring trade flows that you know very much embed themselves in the commercial relationship between the buyer and the supplier. So for us, it's very very important that continuity of funding. It's all uncommitted. You know, any funder can pull out. We never gate. We never, you know, have any restrictions on withdrawal. So, it's very key that at least a core of the the funding comes from banks that are relationship driven. We saw this last year with COVID, where the banks didn't pull out the funders that we had in. They didn't pull out. They didn't cut limits even in the spring of last year when you know there was a lot of pressure and a lot of angst about you know default rates going up and delinquencies uh we've had none fortunately but uh, that's that's really the role of the banks we need that relationship anchor uh but at the same time you know dave dave hit it right on the, the head there was when we're out originating you know we need funders that are not relationship driven who have that ability to take a view on risk and say yes you know i'll put uh, uh, investment down on on this flow allow us to bring in, get it funded, bring the banks in behind and, and then continue to you know, build out that basically flow by flow syndicate. And it's generally a mix of banks and, and non-banks. For us, I think, again, coming back to our investor base, it's really um, explaining the asset class to our investors because for some of them, it's still relatively new or even unknown. And um, coming back to the basics, what is trade finance about? And um, where do you need to focus on? And um, what, what we've seen and, and what we still um, um, discuss a lot with our investors is really about how you um, access the market. What kind of analysis do you have to do and perform? How thorough are you? What are kind of the, the tricks? So it's about know your client. It's about what kind of asset am I actually financing? Um, where am I financing? Um, are the cash flows secured? Uh, so these are all the things you really need to focus on and put a, lo a lot of work into that to make it really a, a stable asset class over time and not just for, let's say, a one-off. With the trade finance market having been hit hard by a number of scandals and negative news stories over the last few months, concern has been growing over the potential impact on the confidence of investors looking to deploy capital into the space, as well as the increasing importance of ESG. In this section, we hear from Martin Opferman, Senior Portfolio Manager at Allianz, 
Dawi Abusher, Head of ESG and Sustainable Finance at Channel Capital Advisors, and Dale Galvin, Founder and CEO at Deliberate Capital. I think there's nothing wrong with the asset class, uh, but there is a, a few things wrong with approaching the asset class. Um, I mean, we, we you alluded to the some of the fraud cases. I think there were a couple of them last year and this year out of mid-sized commodity traders from Singapore and elsewhere. Uh, from what we hear, the institutional investors have not really been affected. This was mostly the banks. Uh, so on that side, I think the perception has not really altered. Um, much different to to um, the the fund that recently uh, closed the 10 billion out of uh, out of Switzerland from the Swiss asset managers. Um, here. Um, that obviously uh, affected investors and also investor sentiment. Uh, needless to say, uh, people were affected by those um, flows. Um, now, if you scratch just at the surface, you would say, okay, this could be considered bad uh, for perception. Now, if you dig a little bit deeper, um, it actually shows that there's nothing wrong with the asset class. For instance, the investment grade um, funds um, the ones which weren't using insurance had absolutely no problem. Yeah? And uh, they were just shot, but uh, their money good. Yeah? Um, the term future receivables, which we've been reading up and down Bloomberg over recent weeks, that has nothing to do with, with trade finance whatsoever. I mean, hot air can, can be produced in any asset class. Yeah? It's, it is it's not something to, to trade finance. Yeah? And uh, I mean, concentration risk, yeah? Managing concentration risk is nothing, nothing special to trade finance. Yeah? It is something that you need to manage as an asset manager, as Ulla pointed out in the previous section. In any asset class, we manage as asset managers. So, and then, you know, source, managing sourcing partners. Um, you know, who would set up a bond mandate where you would buy bonds only from one bank's syndication desk? Uh, nobody would do that. So, so what is, when you ask what is the perception of the asset class, I think there's nothing that changed the perspective of the asset class, but a lot that changed how we approach it as investors. The finance gap has grown significantly this last year, and subsequently, there is a significant unmet need in trade finance globally, which is more dire in emerging markets. The market is faced with not only a large funding gap, but there's also a supply side constraint with some of the larger players, namely the large number of commercial banks, starting to refine and constrain their appetite. So for investors who are looking for yields due to lower returns uh, seen in traditional asset classes, fixed income and corporate bonds, it's not surprising that the global trade finance sector looks enticing. It is a significant size market with a trade finance gap with short-term trade flowing and short-term financing opportunities, often self-liquidating with a great track record. And according to ICC statistics, the default risks for trade finance overall is low and stable, and there are high recoveries. So entering into trade finance requires, in essence, the right partners. If it's done with the right partners, it can be a great diversifier as part of a traditional credit allocation. You know, the idea, you know, really originally behind ESG uh, standards, which, you know, came way before, um, you know, this whole impact investing thing over the last five or so years was to reduce risks, right? Um, the idea was uh, to to help identify risks in, especially in emerging markets companies and, and deal with them um, in, in your finance terms. And so, you know, it, again, with... Um, with uh, trade finance, you have an opportunity to to not only um, you know change the kind of the shape of of a transaction, but also meet a need of an investor, whether that's a CSR program, 
at a bank and, and some of their values that they're trying to, uh, to, to um, you know, there are new values or targets that they're trying to, to meet or is there sovereign wealth funds and their, and their sustainable development goal targets and so on. So, so um, you know, the idea isn't that you're sacrificing any kind of return to incorporate these standards, but rather, um, you know, actually creating some kind of opportunity whether it's risk reduction or even value creation. You know, one of the things that's interesting about trade finance is that um, it gives you this opportunity to think beyond who your client is, right? So the, the, the kind of the neat thing about trade finance is that you're, you're, not only your borrower is, you know, is maybe examined with an ESG lens, but um, you are, uh, you know, thinking about up and downstream. Uh, and so, you know, a, a company like a Google or a Microsoft now, if they want to be a really uh, sort of a carbon neutral company, not needs to not only think about their their lead building in, in Palo Alto, but also you know how their suppliers are are behaving in terms of say uh, carbon emissions. So in trade finance, you have this opportunity to connect the dots, also kind of up and down the supply chain, um, and, and start to think about what it means for 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 not only your borrower but their suppliers and their buyers, and and that's where um, I think you know the big opportunity is for for investment as well. The real story of the importance of sustainability in the wider market is that the asset class lends itself nicely to fulfilling the aspirations of the SDG, uh, sustainable development um, goals outlined by the United Nations. Trade finance directly, as we all know, deals with the real world economy, and it has the ability to drive economic development through facilitating the movement of goods and services. According to McKinsey, the typical consumer company's supply chain creates far greater social and environmental costs than its own operations, accounting more than, for more than 80% of greenhouse gas emissions and more than 90% of the impact on air, land, water, biodiversity, and geological resources. Thus, trade finance is a critical piece of the sustainability puzzle that cannot be ignored. And it's important to mention that beyond the positive impact on society, Embedding ESG in trade finance, as Dale mentioned, addresses the asset owner's risk problem because it ensures top-line risk mitigation and it improves companies' capabilities and reduces risks. So the challenges and the application of the application, in theory, ESG sounds relatively straightforward. Um, everyone's like, it's a great risk mitigator or it's great um, impact on society and the environment. However, when we look at it practically, it is extremely difficult due to a number of factors, and I'll focus on three uh, for time's sake. First, it's the issue of standardization. Currently, there's no mutually agreed upon definition and standards, which causes issues for benchmarking and analyzing data, but also on knowing what we're talking about. As Dale mentioned, the term sustainability and ESG are being used interchangeably, but when you open the hood and look inside them, they mean very different things. The second, biggest challenge and probably the biggest obstacle is the lack of useful data and the fragmented information, both on the client side, but also verifying that data independently. And apply, applying an ESG risk lens on requires material information on those firms. Unlike the equity space where clients are public and data is plenty, in our space, many of our clients are privately held and there's not much publicly available data for them. Also, geographically speaking, we service clients in emerging markets in both Asia and Africa. So for us, ensuring we have global coverage on that data is very important. And lastly, the challenge of driving and measuring impact-focused investments, right? going from the downside risk to the upside opportunity of ESG within our asset class. 
and how to effectively, effectively show a correlation between our investments and a positive SDG output. These is what we would say are the main three challenges for us. And we're looking forward to working with our partners and our clients to come up with some innovative solutions for them. As in all areas of trade, technology has been identified as a key tool for managing trade finance investments. This next part of the webinar featured Marilyn blattner Hoyle, Global Head of Trade Finance at AIG, Bertrand de Cominges, Global Head of Trade Finance Investments at Santander Asset Management, and Mead Wells, President and CEO of Octagon Asset Management, all of whom looked at the issue of investor access to bank-originated trade finance assets, how technology can help create a distribution market, and firstly, the role of insurance. We've actually provided uh, trade credit insurance to fund structures for over a decade, and certainly technology has been an absolutely critical part uh, for transparency in, in getting those deals done in the right way and in a way that investors really understand and can monitor uh, what they are what they are covering. And origination, I would say, is is not necessarily the biggest challenge because there are lots of deals out there. Um, banks obviously do large volumes, uh, and then there are other providers that do as well. Um, what I would say is the biggest challenge is transparency and then pricing alignment in terms of the, the risk profile that you have in, in the pool or in the structure that you have. There are a wide variety of channels for origination and, and certainly uh, in, insurers can be a fantastic partner in, in that space. Um, the, the key though that we find is how do we quickly understand and have the transparency on the entire asset pool to be able to then correctly price and structure the deal. And so that's why technology has been so critical to insurers being able to provide certain clear cover in relation to these fund structures. And where you lose that transparency, things go wrong. There are multiple types of trade finance. You have the traditional trade, letters of credit, documentary, guarantees type of business that is still very significant. Then you have the structured lending. And many of the, of the speakers have been talking about actual structured trade finance or structured commodity finance. And then you have what you may refer as open account or receivables. And these are three very different businesses. And then on top of that, you add the jurisdictional layer. Uh, capital markets are very, very liquid uh, uh, in a specific jurisdictions around the world. There is actually a negative correlation between the, the access to trade finance or sophistication of trade finance and the development of capital markets. But uh, traditionally, trade finance, because need to adjust to the jurisdictional environment and the operational environment, actually can become quite sophisticated. And translating that into capital market investors can take time. And not everybody sometimes has positioned this in the right way. It is oversimplified in some occasions or overcomplicated in others. It is not an, a, a nice uh, to have, it's a must have at the end of the day. There are enormous volumes of data that uh, are requiring trade finance and uh, you need reliable partners. I believe we are probably now in the third wave of, of fintech uh, investment uh, over the past probably 25 years in the trade finance world. Uh, and we can see uh, still operating uh, fintech companies that, uh, that were created 25, 30 years ago. But technology is fundamental because we need to create an agile environment to reduce barriers to entry 
to reduce what Martin Opferman mentioned before is the natural operational challenges of trade finance. That will be the first point. Then we need to, to facilitate exchange of data between the originators, being bank, being funds, being uh, developing economies, uh, financial institutions, or insurance companies, anyone else. Then the asset managers that are a very different uh, animal. And then the final investors, pension funds, insurance companies, and others. And actually, uh, technology may facilitate that, that transparency on data into the final investors from the originator. And last but not least, it is still a very important element. We can use big data, artificial intelligence, and other and, uh, blockchain and others to reduce risk, to make the investors much more comfortable and increase security on the data flows. So these three pillars, I believe, can be fundamental, and technology can bring those into the into the into the fore. This business is a very paper intensive business. And as a result, it's very human resource intensive. So you've got to have strict policies and procedures, roadmaps for everybody in your organization to follow to ensure that you don't miss a step, you don't uh, miss crossing a T or dotting an I. Uh, we've developed technologies internally to help address those uh, processes. And, and it's really a game changer. I think obviously trade tech is out there and there are many other uh, FinTech platforms designed to uh, solve for some of the friction in the, in the world of trade finance. Uh, we have a long way to go, but we've come a long way. And um, the real benefit, in my opinion, is risk reduction. It's not so much the workflow reduction, but it really is the risk reduction. Because if you, if you make a mistake in the process, it can have detrimental impact or a huge impact on you. Um, and often with a lot of deals in the pipeline, a lot of people working on the deals and a lot of information flowing back and forth between the various parties in the transaction, it's, it's very uh, common to have a, um, you know, something miss or someone miss a, a, an email or some kind of uh, component in a transaction. And it's, that's where you can get hurt. A lot of the trade finance funds that have not uh, made it have, have failed because of bad processes and decisions that ultimately um, came back to, to haunt them. But uh, FinTech is, is going to be a critical piece of the equation because it not only does it automate the processes, but it standardizes things and it, it allows for auditing and oversight, which is critical to risk management. The webinar concluded with a special Q&A, which sought to answer the many questions that came in for what was a hugely active and engaged audience on a range of market themes from scalability to the fallout from Greensill and the need for greater transparency and due diligence. Joining us for this was Jason Barris, Chief Commercial Officer at ARC Ratings, Ian Henderson, Chief Investment Officer at Artist Finance, and Federica Sambiese, Partner and CEO at Working Capital Associates. So I think we're touching on several issues which have, have already been um, uh, commented on by several panellists. But what I'll start with maybe is just a, a newspaper headline that I read uh, recently um, in relation to the industry here that we're looking at that we all know and love. And the headline basically said, um, uncertain future for supply chain finance funds. And this really, I think, talks to the first point I want to make around one of the barriers to really expanding this out. And it, at the moment, it's a little bit about the perception. Uh, 
And the perception of this touches upon several of the areas that uh, we've been speaking around. Uh, we've spoken about transparency, okay? A uh, key area to, to, to this, knowing what you're investing in, knowing who you're dealing with, uh, knowing that there's controls in place. Uh, I think Ola uh, earlier spoke around um, knowing about the KYC, okay? If you're an investor, you want to make sure that's done. Unfortunately, what we've happened, and we'll talk about this in a moment, uh, we, we, we've had a bad apple um, in the in the barrel as it was. And, you know, that has really changed the perception uh, in, in hopefully in the short term um, around uh, this asset class. And I think, you know, Jeff, as we know, this asset class is an awesome asset class. You know, it's got very low default rates, you know, great returns, short term liquidating. So in itself, there is nothing wrong. And I think Martin you know, earlier mentioned that point as well, a perfect asset. But it's around part of the structuring, it's around part of the ecosystem, the partners in there, which hasn't in my mind really totally matured enough yet uh, in order to, to allow it to move to the next level. And as we look to get new investors to come into this asset class, we're going to have to answer, go back to the industry, to the wider market, and address some of the concerns which have unfortunately uh, been highlighted recently. And I suppose the very last point uh, around this is if we really wanted to, um, you know, grow the market even more, specifically now in a, an asset class which is relatively immature in its growth, uh, it would be to, to add on an additional layer of comfort for investors. Um, you know, I've been speaking to some clients already, uh, and there's a big difference between an asset coming out uh, without a credit rate rating agency approval on top of that and one that does basically means it's an additional overview onto that, and it brings in additional investors, lowers the overall pricing, makes them much wider uh, participants in the market. And that's, I think, another angle that we, we need to look at. Trade transactions do take time to originate and perfect for funding. So it's always a challenge for fund managers to balance the funding commitments versus the available capital. Uh, you have deals maturing, you need to replace assets. So inherently, you have a cash drag. What we have seen when funds do start attracting larger flows of capital, they're trying to run this balancing act. Uh, they often take the eye off the credit and risk management processes as a result to ensure they are deploying funds. And that's where we've seen problems. Uh, but you know, when you look at the institutional investor side, they're used to investing in different asset classes where they allocate larger sums of money. And, you know, this is a bit of a chicken and egg situation for funds. You need a track record and you need an existing scalable AUM in order to attract further large inflows. So it often becomes a chicken and egg situation to get to those scalable levels. And I think as a result, we're seeing a number of newer vehicles in the market, which are looking at debt capital market solutions, focusing on more homogenous, standardized type products with more transparency coming back to all the other topics that have been raised already, where you do note programs, you have a rating, you only do receivables with credit insurance, and every trade looks the same, despite the diversification in the underlying flows. So I think scalability is being addressed, but it has been a challenge for all the funds that have been out there in days gone by. The asset class and from some of the earlier funds, and, and I think there's still some funds experiencing some of the issues where there's been a bit of extended pretend on some of their non-performing assets in the portfolio. And, you know, this comes down to the transparency for investors where, you know, maybe provisioning and revaluing these assets hasn't taken place at the appropriate time. 
Uh, they haven't been disclosed to the investors early enough. And then suddenly there's a nasty surprise, which, you know, gets an investor's back up pretty quickly and they will put in a redemption request and could lead you into all sorts of trouble. So I'm hoping with IFRS 9 and in turn the auditing firms becoming a lot more stringent and getting a better handle on trade finance assets as such, where they're really looking at the valuations and looking for independent valuers, uh, looking at proper expected credit loss methodologies being implemented by managers, uh, that this will reduce to some extent. Uh, we've certainly seen a number of audit firms being pretty tight on existing funds and other fund structures in recent months where they've refused to sign accounts and managers have had to look for alternative auditors as a result. So. I think it will have a positive impact. It's a pretty painful process if you haven't run through the modeling on provisioning and ECL models for, for a trade finance portfolio, particularly as a fund. Obviously, if you sit in a bank, you have a raft of finance teams to do this for you alongside your capital risk weighting models. But uh, in a fund, you know, it's uh, something everyone's had to address and get used to doing. Uh, but I think it's a welcome and hopefully will drive this transparency. But it goes beyond just the IFRS 9. I think it's trying to get further disclosure to investors is key and giving them sight of the portfolio rather than these being black box operations. And I think, um, you know, from a credit rating agency's perspective here uh, around transparency, you know, the role of the CRA isn't to give um, credit approval, right? So, so, so we're not a credit committee, we're not a bank or anything along those lines. Um, but our role basically is to take a step back and look holistically across the fund, okay, um, as it is, and identify um, the strengths and the, the weaknesses, but to do that independently, okay, uh, which I think is very important. I think when we look at the, the failures that we've had over the last, you know, few years, um, it's mainly been around the the, the governance, okay? Uh, we, we, we talk around fraud, uh, but but we talk around um, some of the basics. Now, you know, I was a banker for 25 years for my sins. Um, and when I was, I used to hate governance. Um, but now coming outside, I can really see the importance because as we're looking to sell these assets to investors who are not, you know, trade finance experts, we have to make sure that the, the organizational structure that the asset that we're promoting is actually going to work out. I mean, Ulla spoke before, you know, she says, you know, it's unknown to a lot of these guys. We have to start to give that confidence. And I think as a credit rating agency, which actually has some experience understanding around trade finance, not following a kind of like tick box exercise, um, then you can really start to, to add some value around that. You can add an, an independent overlay. You can ask the right questions and you can start to provide for the ultimate investor a little bit more comfort. So the perception in the non-specialist market, so in the non-trade finance specialist market after the Greenfield case, has been around the fact that receivables financing and supply chain financing are uh, the, the, the worst culprit in the green seal debacle. It is a product issue, and the responsibility for the debacle is because of the product. And this is a perception, and this perception is actually inaccurate. And we, as a trade, fam, tra trade finance community, we have the responsibility to clarify uh, where this perception is inaccurate. Receivables finance and supply chain finance are traditional uh, merchant banking, commercial banking products that have been utilized for decades uh, in a very successful way. 
they have certain structures and parameters around the existence of a receivable. So there needs to be an obligation of the buyer to pay for some goods to a certain uh, uh, supplier. So there needs to be an underlying assets that, uh, asset that creates the receivable. And this underlying asset is normally a, uh, an invoice. Uh, so it's very clear, very clear parameters. Um, what we have observed in, in the Greensfield case is that the, the bulk um, of, the, of the assets were represented by investments in um, uh, procurement. So procurement finance, stock finance, inventory finance. So financing provided to the client to procure the raw materials. So somebody, I read in the press, somebody uh, described them as future receivables. Uh, there is no such a thing. There isn't a future receivable. So either it's a receivable or it's not. It's like asking, is the rain wet? It, it's obvious. There is no receivable. So the, the perception uh, needs to be really addressed. Uh, receivables finance is a very simple product, very standard and very, uh, uh, very plain vanilla that has actually nothing to do with uh, the Greensill case. Jeff, so I think just on the SMEs, I think SMEs in all countries are, are striving for funding. So I think there's a gap, whichever country you look at. Yeah, it's not only emerging markets, UK, US, Europe, SMEs are struggling for funding. So it's finding those models. And I think the rise of the fintech platforms where they can handle these lower transactions for SMEs and try and interface them where they can maybe raise wholesale funding themselves to become funding partners. I, I think there should be a drive there. We've certainly seen this happen in parts of Latin America and in parts of Africa, uh, where you need local currency funding rather than hard currency funding, number one. And then I think just in terms of the old trade finance gap, we still need the banks. Uh, hopefully the banks do come back. They are still out there. They haven't retreated fully. We still need them in trade finance, regardless of what size institution you are or borrower. Uh, and then from an alternative space, hopefully these will continue growing in number and not only funds, but origination servicing companies, a bit like artists where we use the debt capital markets for financing trade transactions and programs. Uh, and I think we'll see more evolution uh, and we've seen different structures and strategies springing up, uh, those that address PPE and our ongoing health and, and medical supply chains. Uh, there's the food supply chain finance specialist. You've got the impact supply chain finance specialists in the market. So there's more and more names and diversification coming in the market, but there, there's a growth area all around. It's really, I think we mustn't lose sight that it's all trade related trade continues. Uh, and yes, maybe some of the default rates and LGDs and et cetera in the market are a little bit out of date and have been focused around the bank market. So I still think there's a big need to improve data and data flows and statistics and historical statistics for the asset class across the spectrum of SMEs to large investment grade corporates. The next 12 months, we'll basically see the, the, the fallout, unfortunately, of, of COVID, um, you know, kind of expecting to, to, to see a rise in, in, in bad loans, MPLs. But out of that, we'll start to then see the, the, the growth come through. And we all know that trade is basically the, the heart of the global financial system, like 
everything starts with buyers and sellers. Forget about foreign exchange acquisitions. It starts with the industry that we're involved in, okay, which is why it's such a really important um, asset class to do. So, so what are we seeing? You know, we're, we're seeing inquiries um, coming um, all around the place, really. Um, you know, we, we have um, sister companies all around the world. We're already starting to see the initial inquiries. But It'll take a little time for for the the uh, the effects of COVID to to really trickle through. What do I think for the um, the, the the funds area? Um, banks have limited options, right? Uh, the regulation is not going to get easier. Uh, if anything, I've seen some articles whereby the RWA requirements it may even get harder, uh, which will mean that their balance sheets will be restricted, which will mean they'll have to distribute, you know, and if they can can become more comfortable um, structuring deals together, packaging them, you know, working with credit rating agencies, I really do feel we can actually see this asset class move on to its next stage of development. Everything starts uh, with buyers and sellers. And from my perspective, where we focus is uh, food and agriculture, because with the, the growth of population expected to grow by 2 billion, uh, to 11 uh, uh, by 2 billion by 2030, uh, more food is required. So trades in food uh, will grow, trade flows will grow, and the need for trade financing for these flows uh, will grow. So that is where we see the, the need, uh, especially for flows coming from emerging markets, especially Latin America and Africa. That concludes this podcast episode, which I hope you found beneficial. Please do listen out for further Trade Talks podcasts, with plans already being discussed over a follow-up on the topic of trade finance funds, as well as our sister podcast, Trade Insights, and the weekly GTR News Brief. Until then, take care, and we'll see you next time.